This is the Best Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to Best Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Insurance Professional Resources. We're pleased to have with us today Mary-Kate McGrath and Adam Fulginetti from the law firm Marshall Dennehy and their office in Philadelphia. Mary-Kate McGrath is a shareholder at Marshall Dennehy, where she co-chairs the telehealth and tele- telemedicine practice group. She has extensive experience in the defense of healthcare providers, hospitals, health systems, rehabilitation centers, and skilled nursing facilities from the onset of a client's involvement in a case through the appellate level. She also handles compliance matters, including defending and advising healthcare clients regarding government payment programs, electronic discovery, and privacy matters. Adam Fulginetti is also a shareholder at Marshall Dennehy, where he, along with Mary Kate, also co-chairs the telehealth and telemedicine practice group. Adam also has extensive experience with defending healthcare providers, as well as social welfare agencies throughout the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Through Adam's work with the telehealth and telemedicine practice group, he helps clients navigate the intersection of healthcare, technology, and the law. Together, he and Mary-Kate have published and presented their studies regarding the trends and practicalities of telemedicine to the legal and medical communities at both the local and national level. And Mary-Kate and Adam, we're very pleased to have you both with us today. John, thank you so much. We're big fans of your podcast, and we're thrilled to be here. Thanks, John. We're, uh, we're um, very excited to have this opportunity, and uh, we appreciate um, being able to come on and talk about an issue that's uh, of great importance to us and as we're going to be discussing uh, great importance to the industry as well. Well, thank you, Anna and Mary Kate. It's always great working with your firm. And today's discussion is going to be on the conclusion of the COVID-19 public health emergency and what telemedicine providers and claims professionals need to know. So Adam, we're going to start the questioning off with you today. Adam, what is the public health emergency or PHE and how does it impact telemedicine? Well, I think that's a Great question, John, in order to get things rolling, because at least in my humble opinion, I think that our collective experience uh, throughout the last few years has defined the public health emergency in in no less than a million different ways. But uh, technically speaking, the public health emergency or the PHE, as we colloquially refer to it, it derives from the Public Health Service Act and essentially the uh, the provision of the act that we're going to be dealing with. It provides the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services the ability to make a determination and ultimately a declaration that some kind of disease or disorder presents a public health emergency. And the act also empowers the secretary to make such a declaration and put this into effect for a period of 90 days. And if the circumstances persist beyond the conclusion of those 90 days, the office can then renew the public health emergency. So if you've been keeping track over the last few years, we've had a number of 90-day renewals since the inception of the COVID-19 pandemic. So how does this actually impact telemedicine? So the, the public health emergency declaration, it allows, amongst other things, allows the secretary to either waive or modify certain requirements that are imposed by Medicare, Medicaid, HIPAA, and other laws and provisions that govern the provision of healthcare services. And telemedicine is no exception here. What we've seen throughout the PHE is that the the PHE status has incorporated and implemented a pretty vast array of flexibilities and um, relaxations 
regarding how telemedicine is implemented and executed, starting with how it can be practiced, who, who can practice it, where they can practice it, and ultimately the reimbursement structure. There are a number of other issues that, uh, that have been impacted, but so those are some of the main highlights. But generally speaking, it's fair to say that the public health emergency has created a very large footprint on how telemedicine has been practiced throughout the past few years. So Adam, what is the current status of the PHE, PHE and how does its impending expiration impact the practice of telemedicine? Well, John, this is an issue that is really hot off the presses. Uh, literally just a little over a month ago on January 30th, the Biden administration announced that it would end the public health emergency effective on May 11th of 2023. So a little over a month from now, we are going to see the end of the PHE. There is not going to be another 90-day renewal. So when I talked a moment ago about the increased flexibilities that the PHE has created uh, within the medical industry and certainly within telemedicine, the expiration of the PHE is going to have a significant effect on those modifications and those relaxations that we've seen over the past few years. Just to name a couple of examples, the, uh, the expiration of the PHE is going to impact how um, controlled substances can be prescribed via telemedicine. It's going to impact how out-of-state providers can treat uh, patients in states where they may or may not be licensed. It's also going to impact, and we'll talk about this in a little more detail in a moment, it's going to impact a lot of the privacy requirements and uh, how those requirements are ultimately enforced under HIPAA and relevant laws. I mentioned a few moments ago, it's going to impact where telemedicine can be practiced, who can be providing it, and who it can be provided to. There's also going to be a shift in the requirement for in-person visits. Over the past few years, the public health emergency has given us quite a bit of flexibility uh, within the telemedicine sphere with respect to when and where in-person visits can take place. Those are going to shift once the PHE expires. So what I've basically identified here, are, again, these are just a few examples of where we're going to see shifting sands in the industry once that PHE ultimately comes to a close in May. Thank you, Adam. Mary Kate, we'll go over to you now. Can you tell us what are waivers and how do they affect the practice of telemedicine? Sure, John. Waivers exist at federal and state levels, and they're enacted during public health emergencies like our COVID-19 current public health emergencies. Um, and they waive administrative requirements to increase access to medical services. So when you have a public health emergency, the government essentially decides to cut red tape so the good doesn't become the victim of the perfect. So requirements are relaxed or removed as long as the PHE exists. At the federal level, the Social Security Act has created a provision in Section 1135, which as Adam was discussing, gives authority to the Department of Health and Human Services to enact waivers during the time of a national emergency. And specifically with the COVID PHE, scores of waivers were approved, especially and including waivers on telemedicine. And the states tend to mirror what's happening at a federal level on a state level as well. So um, 
there are blanket waivers that extend to all um, covered entities, and then there are specific waivers that someone could petition for. But essentially, uh, with the federal and state waivers regarding telemedicine, um, they made adjustments so that patients were allowed to receive telemedicine, for example, using their home as the originating site, um, which you know wasn't always approved before. Patients were allowed to use different types of modalities and communication platforms that had not been approved prior to the COVID PHE. Um, new medical specialties were permitted to provide care via telemedicine. You don't necessarily naturally think of nephrologists with their dialysis patients as being telemedicine providers, but the emergency required that certain adjustments be made, um, physical therapists, at-home nursing providers, we could go on and on. Um, patients were allowed to have their first visit with the new provider via telemedicine, which prior to COVID was not permitted. You had to have an established relationship with the provider in most cases before you could move forward. Also, a really important one was parity of pay for telemedicine visits. Uh, prior to the COVID public health emergency, there were many services that uh, a telemedicine visit would not be compensated or billed out at the same rate as an in-person visit, and that was uh, withdrawn and, and rolled back during the COVID public health emergency. But these waivers are temporal in nature. So when the PHE ends, the waivers end. And remember that we're look, now looking at May 11, 2023 as the end of the COVID-19 PHE. So providers need to be aware of what's coming down the pike next. Okay, thanks, Mary-Kate. To what extent will telemedicine waivers remain in place after the expiration of the PHE in May? So, John, during the public health emergency, the government was um, communicating that it would create a bridge and they would give uh, healthcare providers a, a good understanding of, we'll give you a few months to a year uh, with rolling out uh, protocols and procedures that comported with the waivers, but wouldn't necessarily comport with um, post-public health emergency living. Um, on December 23rd of 2022, Congress packed, passed the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which President Biden signed into law on December 29, and they are continuing many telehealth-related flexibilities for Medicare patients. Some of these flexibilities are permanent. Some of them are extended on a temporary basis, and the government is continuing to um, revisit what's working. If it's not broken, they're not going to fix it. And they are considering uh, making some of the temporary uh, changes permanent uh, down the road. As of right now, uh, there are permanent changes. For example, a big one is behavioral and mental telehealth services will be continued to be delivered using audio-only communication platforms if that is necessary at the time, which is important. Um, there have been rollbacks on a permanent level saying that Medicare patients may continue to receive behavioral mental telehealth services in their home. Um, with rural patients, uh, rural hospital emergency departments are going to be accepted permanently as originating sites. And when we say originating site, we mean that's where the patient is located, the originating site. Where the provider is located is the distant site. So those are permanent changes. We're having some temporary changes that are extended right now 
through December 31st of 2024. Um, and those temporary extensions uh, under the uh, Appropriations Act uh, include that Medicare patients can receive telehealth services authorized in the calendar year 2023 um, Medicare physician fee schedule, uh, in-person visits within six months of an initial behavioral or mental telehealth visit will not be required, um, and telehealth services can continue to be provided by a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, speech-language pathologists, um, other specialties. So you really need to look to what the specialty is and whether or not um, the waivers are going to be rolled out on a permanent or a temporary basis. Thanks, Mary Kate. Adam, back over to you now. How are there are there PHE waivers that affect how pr patient privacy is handled with tele within telemedicine, and how will these waivers change when the PHE expires? So, thanks, John. Privacy is a is a big issue here, and as as Mary Kate has mentioned, as we kind of pivot and we see the light at the end of the tunnel with the end of the PHE. There are going to be some changes in a number of areas, and privacy is absolutely one of those areas. So to answer your first question, yes, there have been, I guess we could call them waivers, that have affected patient privacy protections and enforcement. This came down fairly early on in the COVID-19 pandemic um, when the Office of Civil Rights, which uh, for your listeners, just so they know, the Office of Civil Rights is the governmental entity here in the U.S., that is in charge of investigation and enforcement of patient privacy, HIPAA privacy protections. The OCR, as we call it, they issued what was called a notice of enforcement discretion. And that's basically what it sounds like. It was a notice that was sent out uh, to the country that told providers that the OCR was going to exercise some discretion over how they were enforcing uh, HIPAA requirements as the COVID-19 pandemic progressed. And this was contingent upon the existence of the public health emergency. Why did they issue this? Well, I'm sure we all recall at the beginning of the, of the pandemic and throughout a significant portion of it, there was a, a fairly large curtailment of in-person medical treatment. A lot of uh, providers just simply were not able to see their patients um, in an in-person setting. And so there was this huge and sudden increase in demand for virtual healthcare, in effect, telemedicine services. And so in order to meet that demand as quickly as possible, the whole purpose of that notice was to effectively give providers the benefit of the doubt. The bottom line was this. What that notice said was that if the providers were making a good faith effort to comply with the HIPAA privacy requirements, if a HIPAA violation occurred through the use of some type of, of newer technology that the providers were using uh, for telemedicine services, that violation would not necessarily be subject to sanctions. In effect, the OCR would have discretion to prosecute that. Now, as we pivot towards the end of the pandemic, what your listeners should be aware of is there is going to be a little bit of hangover with this, with certain areas of audio-only telemedicine. But for the most part, we are going to do a full stop 180 when the PHE expires. And for the 
most intents and purposes, this is going to revert to that pre-COVID setting, that pre-COVID level of enforcement and compliance. So providers and their insurers do need to be aware that once that PHE expires, that the providers are utilizing proper technology through which to implement and provide telemedicine services, and they are taking the proper precautions uh, to protect not only the patients with respect to their privacy, but in effect themselves as well. Adam, thanks again. Mary Kate, the last word of the day rests with you. A final question. One of the most significant issues applicable to telemedicine is the capability or at least the possibility of providing medical services across state lines. So how might the expiration of the PHE affect this particular area of telemedicine? John, if we could have a, you know, danger Will Robinson sign flashing, this would be, I think, one of the biggest topics for everyone to be aware of. As we were talking about earlier, where the patient is located is the originating site. And as a matter of law, care via telemedicine is provided at the originating site. So wherever the patient is located, not at the distant site, which is where the provider is located. Uh, providers must be aware of the location of the patient and must confirm that he or she is authorized to practice medicine in that jurisdiction where the patient is located. Now, note that we're saying authorized to practice medicine, not necessarily licensed, because what authorized means really depends on the state and the jurisdiction where the patient is. There are some states that permit registered practitioners to provide care. Um, these are practitioners who aren't necessarily licensed, but they've jumped through some administrative hoops and have gained approval to become registered and can therefore practice medicine. Um, during the PHE, there were waivers that were enacted that opened borders so that practitioners could come into new jurisdictions and provide care. If a, pr a practitioner was licensed or uh, registered under a waiver, then that is a temporal permission and that will expire in most cases at the end of the public health emergency. So providers need to know, am I still uh, authorized to provide care in that jurisdiction? And if I got my green light via a waiver, then I need to go back to the drawing board and start from square one to uh, seek authorization, whether it's licensure or registration in a way that isn't underneath um, the umbrella of a of an actual waiver. Mary-Kate and Adam, thank you both very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, John. It's been such a pleasure. John, thanks again. We appreciate it. You've just listened to Mary-Kate McGrath and Adam Fulginetti from the law firm of Marshall Dennehy and their primary office in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And special thanks to today's producer, Frank Voinkel. And thank you all for joining us for Best Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash professional resources. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professional Resources features valuable insurance industry content, including searchable profiles of client-recommended insurance attorneys, adjusters, and expert service providers. Brought to you by AM Best, known worldwide as a respected source of insurance industry news and information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.